BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Oh, tonight we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. And it starts right now. Welcome back to another episode of a typical disgusting display podcast for writers by writers who hate writing. We got a great guest today. Um, we're going to be talking in a little bit with NFL insider Mike Lombardi, and we're really looking forward to that. He's doesn't matter whose friend he is. He's just a friend <laughs> of the podcast. Um, so Goldie, a uh, little long weekend, huh? Just time to kick back and relax in L.A. <laughs> I am staggering to the starting line, my friend. <laughs> and here's why. So LAUSD winter break, nice break for everyone, is three weeks, okay? Yeah. Three, not two. <laughs> when I was a kid, we had two. It's yeah. three weeks. And, you know, kids today, they're not like, you know, getting on their bicycles, going, I'll see you later, pop, and going off with their friend. They're, they're home. They're, you, you have to entertain them. You have to do everything for them. So for three weeks, I do everything. We have four days of school, okay? The next weekend is a long weekend. Now, I am 100% obviously for the idea of Martin Luther King Day, that, that he is someone I esteem, and we should take the day off. But you just, first of all, make the break two weeks, and then don't put it with a long... So now I have three more days after I'm, I'm dead from, from this three weeks. Like, I'm, I'm dead. I, I, have, I have nothing left. And now there's this third day that I have to somehow take care of that I, I have no capacity to do it anymore <laughs> at this point. Okay, so I'm going to present you with a parenting dilemma. And I, I, I'm very curious to what you say. Now, I, and I want to frame this against the backdrop of when I got into this career as a writer, I would walk into a writer's room and I was, you know, younger, 28, 30. I, I was single. And I would just look around and go, everyone is worse than I am. Everyone's an idiot. Everyone's so slow. And I was like this hot shot. And I was like, no one has any fucking energy. God, we're, we're lucky enough to be in show business. Where's the passion? Like, where is everyone? And obviously, everyone was older and had kids. And I just completely discounted that, okay? Right. So now I'm fucking old. Turn the clock hands really fast. I'm old. Cut to I'm old, okay? And I'm just going, these, these younger people who are probably looking at me going, like, where's this energy? It's like... You're not a better writer than I am. I'm just tired. Like, if I could catch up on the sleep, I would be as... And those people who I thought sucked were just tired. So why is there no sliding scale in terms of expectations of, like, this person has no kids, is unaware that there's a winter break of a school. They don't, Why would they know? It's just binging Netflix and getting 10 hours sleep for months on end and then gets an additional day off 
because of Martin Luther King Day, and they come in and they say me, and everyone's like, "How was your break?" Like break? I didn't have a break, but now I'm expected to to produce on the same level at work as these people, and you're my boss. So why is there not just the expectation of like, look, this person gets to do forty percent as much? I love because this. of what they're carrying. Like we need to start integrating a holistic perspective on the burdens people are carrying, and just tell people. If you're not married and you don't have kids, do everything. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and also, you had mentioned this before. There should also be a sliding scale in terms of how many kids you have. Yes, yeah. someone yes. with six kids, they, they, they no expectations ever <laughs> that they'll that they can be a writer without ever saying a word. They can just sit there and stare oh. out the window. That's fine. So I want to present you with a parenting dilemma, though. That's a microcosm of what I'm talking about. So yes. I decide, like, what's an activity? And by the way, it's raining, so you can't do anything. <laughs> right. that, that's another level of difficulty of this thing where it's like it's like the top level of Grand Theft Auto where they're like, here's the mission. There's, you're getting shot by helicopters. You know, there's a safe you have to crack as you're being shot. Like, there's so much pressure. So I, I take my kids to a trampoline park, which, by the way, how do I even know to do this? Because did anyone ever take a young Goldie to a trampoline park? Of course not. Was anyone ever like... On a break, was it ever anything other than, like, get the fuck out of here? <laughs> Go Never. ride your bike. <laughs> Never. No, no one ever said, hey, what, do you, what would you like to do? What would be fun for you? It was like, you see that cord of wood? We got to chop that. So I'd be, like, splitting wood. Anyway, so my kids, I'm bringing them to a trampoline park. The oldest is fine. She runs off with her friend. And then the youngest uh, were on the trampolines, and then she wants to play video games. Now, would I have been allowed to play video games? Would someone have said, let's drop 20 bucks in these machines? No, that would have been like a time for a lesson on frugality and the people who came to this country. And I used to chase an ice truck for shavings, and your grandfather was working on a roof with hot tar. But I don't do that. I don't fucking go, you know. And by the way, the cavemen who were fucking painting and, like, hunting woolly mammoths who – and everyone, everyone suffered right until this moment right now, and you will. Too. I don't Wait. do that. First go, joke of the day. First joke of the day. Let's play some video games, okay? So I get the card. I put $20 in. We play a motorcycle game. And then there are those claw games where you grab a prize. So no. my younger kid wants to play a claw game, misses the prize. Great. Second claw game misses the prize. Third claw game. And I go, do you see a pattern here? Yeah. Yeah. They're suckers. The claw does not grab anything. Yeah. Let's use a little reasoning. You're not getting a prize, okay? So I say, <laughs> let's not play any more claw games. I'm saying yeah. no more claw games. Yeah. And then she explodes with rage. Oh, Rachel. Starts punching me. Oh. Runs off in the giant trampoline park, so I'm having to chase after her. Now, remember, no one hits their kids anymore, and neither do I. No, <laughs> right, of course not. No, we're yeah. so enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what the fuck are you supposed to do? I know. <laughs> I just made a fantasy happen that would never happen for me. And I'm getting screamed at and punched and run away from. Yeah. The floor is yours. What do you do? Get in your car and drive east. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I don't. I, I wouldn't know what to do in that situation. No. You, you, well, it, now here's a, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're she's she's gone ballistic she's six, on you. By the way, so like, she's six. It's, it's she's not gone, like she's seventeen. No, <laughs> she's gone ballistic on you and yes. run off into the trampoline park, and you now have to track her down. So yes. when you track her down, uh-huh. can you 
hug her and contain her, or is she still in Tasmanian devil mode? Yeah, still mad, won't let me do that. And 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 by the way, like, you know, I've already tried the I see you're having a lot of big feelings. Yeah, you know, that, that we're that, now all supposed to do that I I hate. That doesn't yeah, work yeah. when the bullets are flying. It no. never does. But here's the thing. You you have both kids there. Presumably you're in this place where they have uh drinks, treats, snacks, things like that. You so come more rewards. You, well, no, but it, it, in like this case it's a calming down. You come with snacks for both of them and say, mm-hmm. "Hey, Ch- older child, here you go. Oh, thanks, Dad. He, and and when your younger child sees the older one eating a snack, isn't she going to be more inclined to just kind of come over? You don't just don't say anything. Don't say, "Hey, talk about your big feelings," or "Hey, you can't do that." It's more like just let the pressure. Well, lower. the older one's with her friend, who we also brought. So, right. Okay. So, so three, it's snacks. Just you and- three snacks. Yeah. <laughs> well, so anyway. That is a a good idea. I mean, I kind of lurked like a spy just watching her from a distance to make sure she wasn't getting in any trouble, but I didn't approach at all. And then, of course, like... There was no way for her to... For you to get close enough to soothe her in that moment? I didn't want to. (laughs) Because you don't want to get hit. Remember, (laughs) that's a very real feeling, too. Yeah, 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 remember, I I get mad, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when well, someone's yelling scream at me and not just you know because of that because i'm bringing the history to it of i'm doing all the things that were never done for me and now those are being spat on and now i'm i'm doubly upset right. yeah which is something talk, that no, and so then i'm supposed to come into work monday or tuesday rather and by yeah. the way the, the the punchline to this joke is they're back to school today guess what today is half day yeah. No. <laughs> Why? What the? What is going I, oh, on there? Oh, I don't know. Ever <laughs> since COVID, I, everything's voluntary now. It's like once we shut down the schools and we're like, look, anything can happen. Now everything's optional. Everything's uh, kind of like, well, you know, we'll see if we feel like it. We'll have school, I guess. Right. And does and doesn't school kind of like drift into July now? I mean, it doesn't yes, go really like. Yep, yeah, that's, that's another thing. Yeah, Whoa. it just goes kind of, uh. and then they come back super early. So. Uh, father time is undefeated. You, you, you let time take care of the problem that you can't. Well, I'll say like the solution is always, and, and you were very close to it. You were it adjacent is they're always hungry. Yes. Was at the root of the behavior, but they don't know that yet. And you're supposed to know that, but when you're in a, a white, a white blind rage, (laughs) you forget that. And, uh, but then I'll, I'll tell you like... Where I really had to restrain myself. So that night, Steph and I are in bed at two in the morning and like the door flies open. <laughs> and, and she's like crying and says like, I had a nightmare. And I say very soft so no one can hear. Good. <laughs> that should have been first joke of the day. Oh, I hit it that's too early. great. Oh, it's a great. And I great. feel like a terrible person. <laughs> but you Good. feel better? Do you feel better after uh, saying it? Or <laughs> a little bit, a little bit better. A little. A little. Uh, that's that's a great coda to that moment. So let's just roll right with that into Johnny jokes. Uh, from Hollywood, home to one of the worst parents in the world, here's Janice. Uh, okay, all right. Oh, uh, uh, 
parental warning for some of these Johnny jokes today. We're going to have some language. Okay. (laughs) I know Johnny wouldn't do it, but I'm doing it as Johnny. Johnny updated. If Johnny were 112 and alive today, maybe he'd curse. Okay. Uh, Maybe you heard about this. A new punk rock museum is set to open next month in Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, The featured bands are sellouts. The exhibits are I don't care. And the cost of a ticket is fuck you, I'm not paying. (laughs) It's a very punk rock museum. Wow. Uh, Oh, here's a little story. Johnny gets it. He gets punk rock. (laughs) That's right. I I get it. Uh, A Republican strategist is alleging that Matt Schlapp, chairman of the American Conservative Union, fondled his buttocks while on the campaign trail in November. A spokesman for the ACU denied the charges, saying it was merely a playful slap. <laughs> you knew, when you I knew heard that slap. You knew I it was knew, coming back. Yeah, you knew yeah. it was coming it back. Wasn't yeah. the last we'd heard of it. Very I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and maybe you heard this, uh, uh, JC. Tennis star Ooh. Naomi Osaka Ooh, yes. announced last week that she is pregnant. Uh, the former world number one said that she will pull out of the Australian Open because her boyfriend did not. <laughs> oh, yeah. There we go. He <laughs> got slapped. Slap <laughs> <laughs> is the word of the day. Uh, and uh, this was a nice story. A large crowd gathered on Boston Common for the unveiling of a new statue called the Embrace that commemorates the first hug between Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. Uh, The two met in Boston, but then decided to move to a more racially tolerant Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) I fucked up the wording, and it still kind of worked. All right. And uh, let's see. Finally here. Finally. Was this this four or five? I think I just reread one. I I believe it's five, but. I Uh, I don't know. Do it. Let's do it. Uh, Finally, I'm going to end on a bad one. (laughs) After 30 years on the run, Sicily's most wanted mafia boss, Matteo Messina, has been apprehended in Palermo. Uh, Boy, it's always the last place you look. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Johnny number two. Not a closer, but... (laughs) I knew it. I knew it when I was reading it. Well... The government is finally launching a public investigation into the mysterious UFO reports from Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. They say they'll reveal once and for all whether aliens crash landed on Earth, and if they did, was a woman driving. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Johnny. Classic, classic. (laughs) President Biden. He's under fire after classified documents were found in the garage of his Delaware home. Uh, The president offered an airtight defense, saying he doesn't remember what Delaware is. (laughs) (laughs) Delaware. Okay. Number three. He's not Delaware. Nope. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, Prince Harry's book shattered records, selling over 1.7 million copies the first day. And congratulations to the prince, who will now never have to go back to not working again. (laughs) Love it. Keep hammering them. And, all right, uh, another celebrity now. Uh, eyewitnesses say Britney Spears freaked out at a restaurant over the weekend, acting erratically and speaking in tongues. Ooh. 
Uh, Britney's camp says it's all a misunderstanding, and the singer herself clarified, I sleep in the hospital for sleep Performative. Love Okay. And I will end on a norm. Right, norm. A norm McDonald. A leopard escaped the Dallas Zoo and is evading capture. Authorities say it's able to completely blend in in Dallas by being a loud bitch. (laughs) 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 Nice. Yeah, we have fun. So today we have a great guest, and I love this man for a number of reasons. Uh, I first became aware of him on the Bill Simmons podcast. I believe at the time he was the GM of the Cleveland Browns, and he would come on and talk about football. And like a lot of people, I watch football like a moron. I <laughs> the, the guys are pushing each other, and then I just watch the ball. And he was the first person who I had ever heard explain it as chess on grass. And we're going to get into football with him and how he views the game. And I've just learned so much both about football management and life from listening to him on his own podcast, uh, The GM Shuffle, co-hosted by Femi Abebefe, who's great. And in his book, Gridiron Genius, which is just an incredible, uh, both easy read and interesting read where I've, I've learned so much. And we, one of the reasons we're so privileged to have him is he's made this transition from the front office of sports to writing. For some reason, he left a great job and wants to be in the trenches with us doing this horrible job, but he's really good at it. And so we want to talk about this, and we also want to talk about how we've had other guests on, other guests of his ilk, the Henry Winklers, the Weird Al Yankovics, and these guests love Alec. They're friends with Alec, and and a lot of the interview was like, uh, uh, Goldie, can you make? Can you go get us drinks and make sure they're? And, and, and I'm just being We're sent off. Zoom. Can you check no. on the food? But this man is my friend, no doubt. not Alex. No Ladies doubt. and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to have the great Mr. Michael Lombardi. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, with that that introduction reminded me of what Lyndon Johnson used to say when he got a great introduction. He said, "I." I wish my father were alive to hear it. And my mother would have believed it. That was too good. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's yeah, good. I love, you know, I'm only here for you, Goldie. I don't care Thank about who's on this podcast. My ass is here for you. All right, I'm, I'm out of here. No, well, it's interesting because Goldie clued me into the fact that you're sort of an lbj file. Now, Goldie, I'm going to test your memory here. Okay. Do you remember on Dad's when you had pitched a joke about LBJ that standards wouldn't let us do? Do you remember that? I I can imagine the area it was in, <laughs> yes. but I don't remember the specifics. I I don't either. I know where but, it is going to? Yeah, it was it was something about uh, the Mexican made an LBJ that that standards wouldn't let us do. <laughs> Great, thankfully standards. That's the one instance where standards was was right. Well, let's let's start with that because what what got you into LBJ? I'm fascinated by LBJ as well. He seemed like such an interesting character. You know, I I think to me, LBJ is kind of a a pathway that I got from, I would, when I was driving around, I wrote about this in Gridiron, I was, would drive Bill Walsh around in his Porsche in 1984. And 
Awesome. I'm searching for Springsteen K-Rock on the radio to listen to Born in the USA. And he wants <laughs> classical music on and Beethoven and all that crap. And we would have conversations as I drove him. And he said, you know, you got to read this book or you got to read that book. And so I read, uh, he told me to read uh, a book uh, called uh, In Search of Excellence by Tom Bet Tom Peterson and, and Bob Waterman. And I did. And then that led me on this like really like reading search. I went to Hofstra and I didn't think I read a book. I didn't do anything but football and go to coaching clinics throughout the country. So like I was just a complete blank tape. And then I started getting on this writing and then I kept led me to Robert Caro. And then Robert Caro led me to the volume of the, but I loved writers my whole life. Like I've loved writers and it, it's just part of my mother kind of brought it into me. I went to Valley Forge Military Academy, which we proudly announced as J.D. Salinger's uh, uh, alma mater. So there's that link there. And I, I was fascinated with him as well. So I've always been fascinated with writers and the writers have led me down this path. And it's so bad that I collect typewriters of the writers that I like. Wow. So I, I like a writer, you know, like like I love uh, David McCullough and there's a typewriter behind me, the Royal the, I think you could see it there. There's the royal one right there. Oh, wow. yeah. That's, yeah, that's the one he wrote all his books on. So whenever I like a writer, I'll just find a typewriter. I'll search it. Like, I'm trying to find out Mario Puso, how, what he wrote The Godfather on, and I'm getting conflicting reports on that. But I'll, I'll get it eventually. I'll figure I think it. he wrote it on the back of a Danish. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he, he jotted it down on a cannoli. Well, but. well, working in football, did this make you sort of an oddball, your obsession with writing? Or is there sort of a secret brain trust in football who's actually hiding that you know these intellectual pursuits I, I think the curiosity of writing made me want to and then i was not dumb enough i mean i was smart enough to realize i was working for some of the greatest of the greats right so i worked for walsh then i worked for belichick and then i worked for al davis and then i go back with belichick and when i was with al davis and during the art shell years when we were horrible and i knew i was going to get fired i, I said you know what i let me go take a writing course since I did nothing at Hofstra. So I took a writing course in San Francisco. I literally every Thursday night, I would drive over the bridge and take this writing course. And I knew I had a, I knew I had a story to tell, you know, and, you know, part of this too was, was, you know, how music influences your life. You know, you kind of have this story you want to tell and being influenced growing up here in New Jersey by Springsteen, that his story, I kind of felt like I, I owed it to the people that I worked for to tell how great they are. And that's kind of led me down the writing path. Wow, that's so cool. Now, you've you brought up now you're you're you've told us you're in Ocean City right now, which is where you grew up. Is that right? Yeah, it's my hometown. And yeah. And, and so you love your hometown and you wanted to go back there. Is that right? You know, it's I love it because it's it's I know that my grandkids, I have five, my wife and I, we have five grandkids. Though this is kind of a magical place. It should be in the Twilight Zone. There's no drink, there's no bars in the town, right? Yeah. And there's no there's no liquor stores in the town. And you can't bring booze to the restaurants in the town. So it's like this, it has this real turn of the century feel to it. It hasn't changed, even though everything else has. So it's kind of very quaint and it's it's perfect. Uh, I never thought I would retire here, but I bought a summer home when I was in the league and I, and I liked coming back. And my kids think they grew up here. 
So now their kids love it here. So, That's you awesome. know, and, and look, I, I, I don't know. I mean, Springsteen spent his whole life talking about running and he's, and he lives 10 miles from his childhood home. So I think. <laughs> that. So it's, it's not, you know, cause my impression of the Jersey shore is heavily formed by the MTV show. And it's, oh, so that's like just that. a different area, right? Like that, that's, that's Northern. So we're on, okay. that, that's, that, that is a little bit. So Jersey's kind of a, a state that's, you know, the Southern part of the state has these barrier beaches off the coast that are what I live on. And then Northern, the, the, the Atlantic comes right to the shore. So they're different and they have different kind of landscapes. And it's an interesting, you know, and it's, it's fun in the summertime. The best time to be here is in the fall. It's beautiful weather and the beaches are warm, but the water's still warm. It's fun, but right. I love it. And, you know, look, as a Jersey guy, you know, it's just, it, I was motivated by this guy singing about chasing a dream and you chase a dream. It's so funny. Your, your answers are, are leading me in so many different directions that are so interesting to me. So you're clearly a big Springsteen guy. Does this mean, I, I always want to ask this of people from New Jersey, does this mean you hate Bon Jovi or do you also love them because they're from New Jersey? I love John. I mean, I was fortunate enough when Bill and I were together, Belichick and I were together at the, at the Browns, Bon Jovi and him became really close friends. Yes. Because John's a huge giant fan and they developed a relationship. And so he would come hang around with us and and we spent time in uh with John. And so I love John's music. I love John. I think John, uh, uh I think the thing about Bruce that's so appealing, you know, great novelists write better as they get older because they continually read and they become more they get further interesting whereas sometimes singer songwriters they kind of putter out at about 28 there's nothing really more to say and this guy has been like i, I in my book uh in the acknowledgement section I, I said look i come from the church of springsteen i mean literally this guy has driven my thought process from the time i was 13 till i'm 63 today i mean you know letter to you is still influencing me as he talks about the last man in the band and I'm thinking about my mortality and how many of my friends have lost. So like, he's been everything. He's been my therapist. He's been my motivator. I've yeah. been to over hundred concerts. I've seen him in Italy. My goal was to go to Italy and be around other Italians and sing Springsteen songs. That was my <laughs> And it was great. And the only time we could communicate was when the song was going on and he was singing, working on the highway. And I thought to myself, we're all singing the song and there's not one person in this audience who's ever worked on a highway, you know, <laughs> but, but, uh, and all those times I've seen him, I've never, I, all I've ever wanted to do is thank him. That's all I've ever wanted to do is shake his hand and say, thank you. Cause without him, I don't think I make a career. I really don't. Well, we have a special surprise for you today. He's not here. Yeah, I knew that. I knew I could see it behind you in that clutter. I knew he wasn't hiding there. He's going to rise up from the junk behind Goldie and sing My Hometown for you. Um, now, another thing I was thinking about as you were talking about Southern Jersey, uh, and this is something that we all share on this podcast, are you near Pine Barrens? Yes. And yes. I does, am the Pine Barrens. And, and that, I, that resonates for you in the same way it does for us, right? More with him. He's the oh, expert. On oh, it. yeah. I mean, look, it, you know, that episode and, and that whole writing to me is just that there's another example. I think, you know, uh, the Pine Barrens is like about 20 miles away from here. And when I was a kid growing up, we were told the Jersey Devil 
right. lived in the Pine Barrens. And if you ever <laughs> were bad, they were going to take you to the Pine Barrens and leave you off. And then you were going, this is really good parenting, by the way. You know, <laughs> in the Pine Barrens, you know. And so you had this fear of the Jersey Devil and the Pine Barrens. So in that episode, talked about the Pine, we're going down to Jersey's, you know, and the fact that they should have stopped at Roy Rogers before they went because they were hungry. I mean, oh, it's just so well written. I mean, it's, it's just, see, to me, I think, and I don't want to go on a Sopranos kick here, but please Neil, do. Neil Simon wrote in his book, uh, Rewrites. This has impacted me my whole life. So he writes in his book, Rewrites. He says he had a hard time writing plays, right? He had a really hard time writing plays. And, and, he, and finally, it realized that it dawned on him that he didn't make the characters interesting enough for the audience to want to be with him in Act 3. Yeah. And I think that's how we should live our life. Only be friends with people you want to see in Act 3. Oh. And the reason The Sopranos is so good is because we can't wait to get to Act Three with them. I mean, they're all so interesting and they're in depth, and they're we got we all just want to go to Act Three. Whereas some of these shows, the characters lose their appeal, right? They lose like like I'm watching I'm watching uh, Yellowstone, and and I love Yellowstone, but I think they've made Beth too over the top. Like she was great, and now they've kind of portrayed her in a way to where she's almost like a lunatic, and and she's not as interesting as she was when there was less of Beth. You know what I mean? As a writer, you know, that that's where a lot of us lose our ways. Like you look at Dwight on The Office, where you get this guy who's, you know, quirky and interesting. And then all of a sudden he doesn't understand you can't spray people in the face with a fire extinguisher. And you go, <laughs> OK, now I don't get it. Like now he's a sociopath. Right. Um, but I, I, you know, because you are such a great Sopranos aficionado. What do you make of the ending? Do you like it? Do you dislike it? I actually, I didn't understand it. Uh, I gave it a lot of thought and I like the fact that he put it in my hands. I like the fact that he made me think where this was going. And I didn't really, at the end of the day, I didn't mind it because I, I felt like, you know, all these theories that he got killed there, who ordered the hit? Like that there was peace in the family. Nobody ordered the hit. Right. So I've like, why would he get killed in that diner, you know, and I've sat at that diner before, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to feel the diner and, and I, I felt like he just to me, I don't think he he wanted to end it because he didn't want to have anything left. To, he didn't have anything more to, 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 to tighten it up. I liked it. I like that it's in my imagination and my curiosity as opposed to I don't need a bow and a tie it all together. I have agree. I ever given my therapy take on this podcast? Yeah. Go ahead. So therapy just ends when the time is up. The clock hits a certain point and your therapist says, you know, to be continued, we'll yeah. see you next week. You you can't say like, no, but I'm just now I'm telling you about my grandmother who, you know, had no right. idea who I was. You, you, you can't continue. And so therapy being such a big part of the show, I wondered if at least subconsciously he was just going, your time's up with this person. Wow. And like. Yeah. That's it. It, like it that. just ends where yeah, it ends same. and you have to kind of go forward with your life. That's a great as you do in therapy, no matter where you end. But I, you know, having said that, I I do because you on your podcast bubbled with anticipation for the the movie to come out. I believe last year or two years ago, and and I I with you was on this journey of like, oh my god, this prequel. What's Chase gonna do? How he's good? And and you, to your credit, and I feel like you do this with a lot of things. Is you're so incisive. 
You just said instantly, like, this is a disappointment to me. I don't like it. And so where do you think it went wrong? It was a high school reunion where we didn't know any of the characters. He never developed the characters. Like, we never understood the characters. Like, he never gave us a relationship. He wanted us to love the characters because we loved it. We loved them from before. But he didn't tell us how they became who they were. And they just jumped to it, you know. And I think Chase not – see, I think the whole reason The Sopranos was great in my opinion, there's a scene to me that defines the the, the, the whole series. It's when Tony's in with uh, Melfi and they're talking about Vito being gay and what are they going to do with Vito? And she goes back and forth with them. You know, oh, he's, you know, I know they're born that way. You know, and then she counters him with the intelligence and all. I mean, it's brilliant, right? And she's advising him and he's taking the advice and he's lying to her and she knows he's lying. And it was, the, it, it summed up the series perfectly, right? And to me, the reason it was so good was because Melfi controlled the direction of the series. If she wanted to have, she wanted to change direction, Chase would use her to change direction. When we got to the sequel, we didn't have, we didn't have her. We didn't have her as the centerpiece to change the direction or to learn about the characters. So we had no insight. So it was like going to a high school reunion and you didn't know anybody. Uh, Like you know the names. But you don't. But you didn't feel it. Like we've had thirty year gap here. I don't really know who you are. Like I, I, I know we hung out as kids, but I don't really know you. And well, that was wow. so the, the best part of the whole goddamn movie was was uh, Van Morrison's Astra when he was driving down the street listening to Van Morrison. Yes, uh, you know, and it's interesting to think that Chase, uh, to me, in the original series, which I think is nearly flawless. But but if there were one kind of weakish link. To me, it was in season one when they would do the flashbacks. Those didn't like the, the the guy they had playing the dad was just wasn't great. The guy they had playing the younger Uncle Junior was not memorable in the way that the the real Uncle Junior was. And and when and the, of course, kid actors are always such a crapshoot. And and those to me felt like a, a little weak. Those flashbacks and this movie was that was all that. Right. Um, and then the reason that Uncle Junior would would kill Chrissy's dad over an insult, like yeah. like, and then to carry that with him this whole life, like I, it, it, that didn't make it believe. Like I know Junior's a despicable human being, funny but despicable, right? You know, but you know, I I, I to me, I, it didn't make it. it did nothing tied together. It was loose. It was, I I don't know. It wasn't his finest day. I can say that. Yeah, well, the the show itself, which is what we're we're mainly huge fans of, was was just absolutely uh, yeah. just just perfect. And I think to go back to the to the ending, Goldie, I love your therapy theory. Yeah. I've read a couple that you know somebody said, which seemed plausible to me, that David Chase is a big rock and roll guy, and it was simply smashing the guitar, and you know the, the concert's mm. over, you know, like that's it. And also, I've heard a theory which I kind of liked was that, um, and I'm sure you've heard all of these too, but that it was Carlo who ordered the hit because Carlo's son got picked up for a drug charge and he knew that but I think Tony... Carlo was an informant, though. See, Carlo got arrested, too. Right. Carlo was in jail. He was singing, you know. But, and, but and I think he did Carlo it for... order a hit. How could... He doesn't have any authority to order a hit, you know? I mean, money makes authority, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I, I mean, guess so. I don't uh, know. I, I just thought it was... I, I don't know. I, 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 we're still I, talking uh, about it. I love it. I, I think it's the greatest... I mean, I could watch it. I watch it. I mean... You know, the character introduction, you know, how they played off one another, you know, from one villain to the next. And the way they continued the arc of the story to me was just brilliant, you know, and and there's not really 
there's not a moment where I don't think, God, this, and there's everything that's, as Goldie knows, there's everything that's practical. Like Sean Payton the other day announces that it's going to take, you know, a first round pick to get him. And basically, or Mickey Loomis said, if somebody wants Sean Payton, you know, they're going to have to deal with us. And basically it's the uncle junior line. Either you come heavy or don't come at all. Like right. there's lines you can intertwine into the whole story. It's yeah. just so- I came heavy, like you said, but I don't want to use it. Exactly. I was going to say, you, you have this photographic memory. You, like, you've referenced more books in the last 20 minutes than I remember <laughs> even the titles of. Yeah. And as you talk about The Sopranos, like, you, you're able to pull these references in Springsteen. And, and Belichick even mentions in the foreword of your book, your photographic memory. Is this something that you know, you've been aware of your whole life? Is it just that you you drink in moderation and you're like, do you cultivate I, it? Or how does I your mean, mind you work? Like my wife, if you ask my wife, she would say I have the worst freaking memory of all time. Like I don't <laughs> remember and I can't hear a goddamn thing, which is true. But <laughs> I think we only remember what we love, you know, what we're passionate about. I mean, like I loved football. I love writers, you know, and so I kind of do that. If you ask me, don't forget to get the the Lysol for the bathroom. I probably will. You know, I got to remember right. that. I mean, I think it's all related to what your passions dri- driven are. That's and so I, I do. I, I like it. And, and I think your experience, as you experience life, those experiences help you live life. And so if you don't draw back on them, it's one of my problems with coaches that, that these young coaches in the NFL, they don't have a sense of history or go back to study the great coaches and what they did and how they did things. You know, it's like all writers go back and, you know, every writer was spurred to be a writer by some great writer. You know, everybody yeah. wants to be the next Hemingway or the next Robert Caro or however. And, you you know, who's the next Joan Didion? And so you kind of read them to become them. And yet I, I think that's really why we see it more and the torch is passed more as opposed in coaching. They just want to steal plays. You know, they want to steal that. The, they don't understand it. You know, I used to get on the team bus with Bill Walsh and he'd be doodling plays. And and he would tell me to go get 1940 tape on this single wing offense because he wanted to study the history of it. That's awesome. Well, he was one of the great minds and you've worked with a lot of the great minds. Um, so now we've, we've come back to football a little bit. And let's talk about something that's extremely topical today, given that the, we were recording uh, the day after um, the Cowboys beat Brady and the Bucks in Tampa. What do you think? What, what is our good friend Tom Brady going to do next, do you think? So I think you got to understand the backdrop. Tom Brady reminds me. So first of all, all of us that have come through the Belichickian program, okay, you know, there's the, there's certain ways you learn football through a through a lens of that's and not all lenses are the same. You know, that's why you know different teams can diff, win different ways. But when you're in the Belichickian program, you kind of become institutionalized. Uh, I equate it to Brooks and Shawshank. You know, you live exactly. in this, you live here, right? And so Brady was institutionalized in New England. He understood how they did things, how they game plan, who was held accountable, blah, 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 all these things. And when he left, when he left Shawshank, called New England Shawshank, and he's out there doing groceries down in Tampa, it wasn't comfortable. <laughs> it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't what he's used to. And so he was able to mask it for a couple of years. But last night watching him, I felt like he he was it's just he's he's used to one way. And 
Tampa has their way. And I don't think those two can ever coexist. So for me, it was painful. You know, do I think he's going to go out throwing, winning the Super Bowl at 46, the Billy Chapel moment, he throws a no-hitter at Yankee Stadium? No, I don't think that, right? But I do think that he has more to offer, but he's never going to be able to do it unless he's back into that program that he's comfortable with, that environment that he's been so conditioned to. And I try to explain this to people, and they say, well, you're just a Belichickian fan. No, that's how I was raised. Like, I'm, I'm a shitty personnel guy if I worked for somebody else. But if for Bill, I can be really good because it's my t- he, I understand what he wants. We're aligned. And without that alignment, it doesn't work. Can, can well, I, I – because yeah. I want to talk to you about how – the difference how someone like me sees a game from the couch and the difference how you see a game. So the Buffalo-Miami game, like I watch that game and I go, well, Miami starts a third-string quarterback and they come close to winning the game. So they did a good job. That's what I that's just what I see. Now you watch this game and you are irate at the Dolphins. So can you kind of go through a little bit the things you see that the casual fan says, "Oh, that man does a good job. They didn't make the playoffs last year. They made it this year and they almost beat a good team." To what you see as a disaster. So there's reliability, right? And there's validity. Okay, those are two things that are contradict one another oftentimes. And and the casual fan sees reliability. They look at the scoreboard. They look at the job at hand. The validity is, did you give yourself a chance to win the game? And so if you're the coach of the Miami Dolphins and you're going up to play Buffalo in Buffalo and you have a third string quarterback, you have to work backwards. You have to say, how can we least, how can he play the least and not influence the game? So I've got to come up with a way where he's a running back, where he's going to run more, where I'm going to give him some really easy throws. I have to minimize his role in the game. I've got to rely on other players to play to their level at a higher level. I've got to scheme this to where I win. I've got to be able to be the, you know, Mark Twain has that line about the greatest swordsman doesn't fear the second best swordsman. He fears the unconventional swordsman, right? Right. So I've got to be the unconventional swordsman here. So I got to strategize a game plan that I'm going to be able to go up there and give this player the best chance he has to win. But what McDaniels did, who's supposed to be this guru in the run game, he puts the ball in the kid's hand 45 times. And then he walks off the field and says, well, he just didn't play good. No, you didn't give him a chance to play good. The strategy was horrible. You, you, that's where I get, I love the game is the strategy. How are we going to play this game today to give us the best chance to win? And the fan just looks at the scoreboard. Well, we were close. Well, you know, we got a sack for a touchdown. We got a punt return for a touchdown. We had one drive that went 18 yards for a field goal. Like there was, there was really nothing we did to help our team win that, that Buffalo didn't really just give us. So I see the game that way. I see it as forget the scoreboard. Like what's reliable? What's valid? Like people hire because this is what we do. This is reliable. But what is the truth? The truth comes from validity and that's through strategy. It's so interesting talking about how you watch the game because I was watching that game and obviously as a as a Patriots fan, I don't like the Bills or the Dolphins, but I found myself rooting for the Dolphins because I guess the underdog or whatever, you don't want to see another team ascend to be like a dynasty to tarnish sort of what the Patriots have done in the past. Um, but I was watching the game and I have, as as I hear you do, a conspiracy mind. And I'm thinking to myself the whole game, they're starting the play clock early. They're starting the play clock. It's not, it's, it's not realistic that every play they're rushing to get the ball snapped. Do you ever think things like that about the NFL, that there are these little 
you know, things that home teams do to obviously the Patriots, are, you know, that was uh, under the microscope for a while. But is that something that's in the realm of possibility to you? I mean, I think the I mean, look, you're talking to a guy who lived through the tuck game on the yeah. other side, not from the Patriots side. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. And so I worked for an owner who was completely convinced the conspiracy theory. He still wants to know who Art Rooney was on the phone with in the dugout of the of three rivers of the Immaculate Reception. I mean, look, <laughs> I mean, I, I, my my goal, I told my two sons the day I die, uh, you know, you put me in the ground. Whenever they tell you officially who killed JFK, come over and tell me because I got to oh, know. Like, I, I know want to know that too. So I'm a conspiracy theorist all the way through. I do think they make – I don't know – I can't say it's intentional. Like the like the rough and the passer call in the Giants game, like it, that was just so bad. You almost want to think it was intentional. So I, I do – I think to me what I have a problem with is the coach isn't really ready to control the game. You know, McDaniel didn't control the game. Yeah, his team was close, but that game could have been 49 to nothing too. And nobody would have said anything. Like it wasn't it wasn't him that made the game close. It was really Buffalo who kind of helped them make the game close. And I think we have a difference of that. The hard thing for fans to do is, and this doesn't happen because television doesn't do a good job with this, is there's two things you're watching in a football game: who's in control and who's in the lead. Mm. Right. And so sometimes control in the lead, like last night, the Cowboys were in control and they were in the lead. Okay. So that those two come together, but there's sometimes like Jacksonville and, and the chargers were where the chargers had the lead, but they really weren't in control. So you've got to separate those things that, and that's how I look at games that I always say to myself, okay, here I am, you know, we start the second half, we're up 27 to seven. I'm saying to myself, we need 38 to win the game. If I'm chargers. And and I'm saying, Jacksonville, we need a turnover to win the game, to get back in the game. So there's always that kind of play that goes on. That's that's so interesting. Now, in, in looking at your uh, professional football resume, you've, you've worked with some teams, as you've talked about, that maybe weren't in the best place when you were there, Cleveland and, and uh, the Raiders. Um, but you've come into a couple of teams that were mid-dynasty. You know, yeah. you came into the Niners in 84 – you came into the Pats in 2014. What is what's your different? Do you have a different kind of mindset coming into different teams? Like with a team that's not doing as well, do you say like, "Well, I got to try and put my stamp on this," and a team that's doing well, you're kind of like, "I'll just let them keep doing what they're doing." Or how do you feel about that? I think to me, you know, in both those situations, I felt like if I gave the person Walsh or Belichick the right information, they would make the right decision. Right. So to me, it was on it behooved me to be good at my job, because if I gave them the right decision, the right information, they would make they're too smart to make the right. They would make the right decision. In other jobs, I wasn't sure of that. Right. Like I wasn't sure even if I gave them the right information, they would ignore it and not. You right. know, it's like like I'll give you a perfect example. In 1991, uh, 1989, I tell Bud Carson this this kind of crusty old he started the Pittsburgh Steeler cover two, was part of the Steelers dynasty, waited a zillion years to become a head coach. He finally became a head coach of the Browns in 89. So when he gets the job, I walk into his office and I say, but I think the best special teams coach is this coach, Scott O'Brien. He's at the University of Pittsburgh. I think he's the best coach ever, right? And oh, and, and Carson looks at me and like, what the, what are you talking about? He, yeah, I'm not hiring no college coach. Don't be an idiot. Get out of my office. Okay, I leave. Two years later, I go into the same office. Belichick's now residing in that office. And I say to Belichick, I think the best special teams coach is this guy, Scott O'Brien. I think you should talk to him. Okay. 
Belichick says, have him come up, drive him up from Pittsburgh. We'll talk to him. He spent six hours in his office. They hired him. He hired him that day. Great. So there lies the difference. I gave one guy the right advice. He wouldn't listen to it. The other guy could, could do it. And to me, that was the difference in both. Like Walsh wouldn't make a mistake. Like Walsh would never make a mistake. He would hit it down the middle of the fairway every time. Same with Belichick. Some of these other guys, you just couldn't. And a lot of that goes to being on the same page. Well, one, one of the reasons I love talking to you so much about this stuff is there's such parallels between your role in football and our role as writers. Because we come in, we're hired to make recommendations. Sometimes we're the boss, sometimes we're not. And right now I'm talking about when we're not the boss. But even in the instances where like, we are the boss and we're running the show, we're answering to, in effect, the owners who are the people who run the network and program the network. And you can only come to them with information, right? Like you can only say, here, I think this character does this or, or here's who this, this person is and we have an idea for a story. It's this, that. And they always retain the power to just kind of go, no, right. and then say, and it's really important we push this other element that you go, that has nothing to do with it. So talk about like navigating these situations with someone like Al Davis, who was so strong headed that you've used the phrase uh, that I remember. Um, don't poke the tiger. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a management, which is a very fun management. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, like I always used to say all the time, like our dumb coaches, you know, we'd be on the practice field up at up, up in training camp in Napa. We used to take over the Marriott in Napa Valley. And he would be standing on the middle of the field in the morning. And he's not a morning person to begin with. And so, you know, these co and he would stand in the middle. And if you went far to the left, you could avoid him. If you went far to the right, you could avoid him. But of course, these idiots go straight down the middle, right? And I'm like, and I would tell him all the time, like, literally, just picture a, a, a tiger, a lion, a big male lion sitting there. Would you walk to him? Well, no. Well, that's exactly what you're walking. Don't go over and pet the tiger. Like, ignore him. And so... The way you, to me, with Al, you almost had to make it like it wasn't, it was his idea. You kind of had to put it in a way where you just give it to him and then walk away. And then don't even remember you gave it to him. And so then he'll digest it and read it. And then if he likes it, you know, he'll wink at you, but don't bring it back up. Like he wanted you to give him information, not, not that. So I think it's hard. I think, I think the challenge for writers or people in the business to, to convince these owners is, is to try to take them out of their comfort zone and give them a different perspective. If we do this, if we do this, this will look like that and it won't work. Like if you take them to a point where you you take their idea, it's called second order thinking. If you take your idea and move it forward so they see what's going to occur by what they do, you know, we're going to make we're going to make Bet Dutton this ridiculously crazy lady. Here's what she looks like. That's like that's not a good idea. Like let's go back here and this is what it looks like. I know it's hard because they all just they're motivated by again it goes back to reliability they're motivated by oh she's a great character let's keep making her deep you know this dark character let's keep going down this road as opposed to bringing out the truth well so I, as i was thinking about talking to you today like one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is i think there's this parallel between quarterback scouting and show selection which is that you know, so much money and time is spent scouting these quarterbacks like a Zach Wilson who goes number two in the draft. And then it's they're so wrong. The people who are the most knowledgeable are the most wrong. And so much goes into selecting the shows that are on the air that we see. And 90 percent don't work. Right. So in your experience, like how can we up our chances of a decent selection? 
Yeah, I used to my wife and I when we would drive when I lived in Playa and I rode Gridiron Genius. I loved driving around and seeing the billboards of the new shows coming out, and I would look at my wife and say, "That's got no chance. Like that's got no chance. Like that's got no chance. Like I can just see the billboards and that's got no chance. Like there's yep. no way that's working, right? You know, so." I, I think in any selection process, it's always about elimination, right? So like why? So, and then what is the criteria? What is, you know, what is the, the main thing has to be the main thing all the time. So like, what is like when you're trying to draft a quarterback, what is the main thing that fits the system of which we're going to play this quarterback in? So if you ask yourself the question, Zach Wilson, what offense could he run and where would he be successful? And you'd say, okay, he's got to run this or he's got to run that. Now you've got an identity of where you're going. If you sit there and say, well, he can do anything, you, you're you going to be lost. It's like when I was a kid, my uncle took me to a diner and he said, just order the hamburger, kid. And I said, why is that, Uncle Fred? And he said, because they can't cook it all good here. Like they can't cook everything on that menu good here, right? So like, like if you don't know where you're going or what this show is truly about, you're never going to make it a successful show. Like you're never going to be able to do that. And so many of these, well, we're just going to be a little bit of everything. Well, when you're a little bit of everything, you're not anything. And that's what happens with quarterbacks. Why is Brock Purdy, the last pick in the draft, successful? Because he comes in and Kyle says he needs to be able to do these three things and our offense will highlight him. And so he does those three things really well. And yet, and so they highlight him. He's accurate, he's smart, and he's tough. Okay, we got something here, right? We got something here. So when they drafted Trey Lance, they wanted to change who they were. Well, that didn't work. You know, that didn't work. So I think a lot of it is, is is, this is a Walshism, is you've got to know who you are. We've got to scout inside out, not outside in. I have no idea who I am. That is a great (laughs) point. I I can look at my failures and go, you know, there was a failure. I'm talking now about this show I had, United We Fall, where I, I, you know, it was so close to just staying on the air, which is success. <laughs> um, but I look at it and I and I say, you know, I wanted to go. I had I had totally forgotten about this. That in the pilot process, I had had this brother. Like it was about the difficulties of just daily life of a married couple. And so they, there was this gay older brother character who had none of these difficulties, and he would waltz in. And sort of look around at how dirty their house was and say funny shit and leave and go off to Italy or whatever. Literally, we're taping in front of the audience. This guy waltzes in and it's like Kramer entered for the first time on Seinfeld. Like standing ovation on his departure as he threw his scarf over his shoulder with contempt and walked out and then shut the door very softly. Uh, And so the network just looked at that and they said, well, you know, we need to push diversity and it was kind of about me and my wife and so the wife you know is of mexican heritage and she has these eight older brothers who i was going to introduce later in the day but they said like we got to lead with the diversity and then all of a sudden it was like let's put all the brothers in and everyone was like yeah i know i get why you're doing that but it's just not as funny as the guy throwing right. the scarf which was a simpler thing so you know i i i do like value <laughs> that advice so much i think it's it's important for the audience to go just do one thing. Do one thing right. Golden do it really good. I mean, you go to In-N-Out Burger, it's not complicated. They do right. it really good, right? Like, they're not trying to win you over with their menu. You know, they're just trying to do what they do really well. And then, you know, what you have is you have quality control. You can They can justify how they're doing it. It's the same thing. How did Joe Gibbs, the great Joe Gibbs, think about this. Joe Gibbs goes to the Super Bowl 
with Mark Rippon, Stan Humphreys, and Doug Williams, three different quarterbacks. Not only does he do that, in 1987, during the strike year, we, during the strike year, one of the funnest times in my co- career, we were getting guys out of car washes. We were, it was, it was insane. So we played three games during the strike year in 87 with strike players. They, these guys crossed the line and we played. The third game, the players came back. Some players on some teams came back. Some, some in union towns didn't. Cincinnati didn't get any of their players back. Philadelphia, none, right? So Washington goes down to Dallas on a Monday night game the third game of the strike year. And Dallas, a bunch of their players crossed the line. Washington, nobody crossed the line. So Joe goes down there with Tony Robinson playing quarterback, Lionel Vitale playing running back against Danny White at quarterback, Randy White playing, and Ed Tuttle. He got the whole team there. He beat him. He wins the game. He wins the game. How? Because he he did exactly what I, Mike McDaniel didn't do. He figured out what his strengths were, what, how he had to play the game, and then he executed it, right? He's exactly what he did, and he won because he was a strategist on how to approach it, and he wasn't trying to be everything. He was just – he knew how he played this game, and if he yeah. played it this way, he had a chance. He didn't think he was going to win. He had a chance. Yeah, there's And that's the all chess. you can do. Yeah. And so I think that's what happens with television. They try to do everything, and then they the audience is confused – and after three minutes, you're like, I'm not watching this crap. This is over. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what does happen, and I've experienced this, was that they have so little faith in anything to work that when you have a pilot and you pitch them ahead for the first season, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, here's where we're going, that I was told, we may never get to that, so just put it all in the pilot <laughs> so that we'll at least get to see it. And so that's what happened. Yeah, Ugh, they, they that, can't visualize it. No, like, there's no vision in it at all. There's no vision, and nobody really understands the formula, right? Like, everything, there's a formula to what you have to do. There's a patriot way. That's a formula. You know, we're going to be able to do this. And there's a formula for what was successful. I mean, how does how does the – what's his name? I, I forget the guy that had all those uh, sitcoms in the – how did – he had a formula that worked. Norman Lear. I was just going to say Norman, Norman Lear. Norman Lear. I mean, yeah. he has a formula that works. And, and you know, he, and the characters were interesting. And yeah. so – and they endeared themselves. So – but now they don't want any character development. They want you just to accept the person that they like them. Well, it's interesting that you guys bring this up because – you hear a lot about the NFL that they they say it's a week to week league, um, and I think that's kind of goldy what you're talking about. Whereas that's a double edged sword, because you can say, okay, I'm going to sell out and do everything to win this week, but with really no plan about our whole season. I'm Mike McDaniel. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I've learned from this conversation. When you say week to week, week to week to me means we're going to play a different game every week that the opponent's going to dictate to us how yes. we have to play this game. That's this the week. smart way of thinking about it, yes. To me, the brilliance of New England is every week's a different week. Like, what happened last week, like, last, like, what, like okay, this week coming up, we got four more games going. Whatever happened last week was in, is irrelevant. This happens in betting all the time. The fans think Dallas played shitty against the Washington Command- Commodores, right? And so <laughs> they're going to play bad against the Bucks. Well, that, that, that was last week's game. That has no relevance on this week's game. Whereas Tampa, which has played poorly the entire year, people think they're going to flip a switch and all of a sudden play good. Like, there's no logic in that. So yeah. you got to put last week behind, and, and this week's a different game. And I think that's how – I think what happens is they want instant success. 
I mean, think about this. Ask yourself, would Seinfeld have been able to survive today based on what they did when they first started? Probably no, not. Right? No, 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 which is crazy. They only got more episodes because Johnny Carson was supposed to do a primetime program. And then he came to them and said, like, I, I don't have anything. I don't want to do it. And so they had to fill that time. And they said, we could just get like four more of these. Wow. And it did OK. And then it did better. Right. How about the wire? I mean, like, do you think the wire, if it was on, forget about, I know the language and all that with that. I mean, the way that those ratings started, would that a show have lasted on, on regular television? Of course not. Never, right, never. Um, yeah. But, but Mike, let's go back because we've covered a lot of interesting stuff here, but I'm, I'm interested in hearing. So I, I read you played football in high school. You played football at Hofstra, but then you immediately, it seems like after graduation, uh, began working uh, for UNLV. How did that first job come about for you? So, you know, I think the world gets out of the way for people that know where they want to go. And and from the time I saw this this guy on my television screen that looked like he belonged at my family's Sunday dinners, <laughs> I wanted to be in football, you know, and I was no relation to him at all. I just had the same big nose that he had and the same last name. So that was really a driving force. And I wanted to I wanted to chase that dream. And then I had Springsteen telling me to cross Highway 9. And so <laughs> I sat down and I at the military academy, I went there to get kind of like at least to get myself where I could go to college. You know, like I was I was at a point. So it where wasn't I'm, your parents going, hey, you got to straighten out. It was you who said, I need to straighten out. I, I, I basically what happened to me was. In 1970, the drinking age in New Jersey at this time was 18. So I was hanging around with a bunch of guys that were going to Temple. I was working in this restaurant washing dishes. And, and, and they would have this house. And I was 16 years old. And they had this house. And they were having so much fun. And I'm like, I got to go to college. Like, this is this looks like way too much fun. You know, <laughs> like, like so how am I going to get to college with the horseshit grades I have in high school? So I run into my – I run into my – former neighbor who was a coach at, at, at my hometown here who just became the head football coach at Valley Forge Military Academy. It was serendipitous, right? I'm on the girl, I'm on the beach with my girlfriend and he walks by me and he's like, Hey, how you doing? I just saw your father. My father's a barber. I just was in the barbershop. I was looking for you. And he gets me and he says, you should come to Valley Forge to play football. So I end up at that moment, I realized I want to go to college and this might be the only way I can get there. So I go to Valley Forge and then I go to Hofstra. And while I'm at Hofstra, I know all I want to do is get into football. I want to be in pro football. I'm chasing that dream. So I start going to these coaching clinics all throughout the Northeast. Like every in, in January and February, I would get in my little, little car and I would drive as far as I could. I would stay in the, the most ragtop hotels. I'd save money. And I'd go to these clinics and I would start learning football and I would meet people. And one of the clinics that I met, a, I met a guy named Harvey Hyde, who was the head football coach at Pasadena City College. And I stayed in touch with him. So I'm at Hofstra. I'm in a dorm room one day and I'm reading the New York Times and used to read the transaction section of the New York Times, see what was going on. And I read Harvey Hyde named head coach at UNLV. Mm. So immediately I call him on the phone. You know, there's no text or cell phones. I call him. He gets back to me and says, hey, if you want to come out here, I'll give you a job. No pay. I'll give you all the Burger King coupons you want. And, <laughs> and I'll let you stay in this hotel and yada, yada, yada. And I said, hell yeah, I'm doing it. And so I got in my car. I crossed Highway 9 and I went out. And, that, and that's what I did. I chased a dream. And and so that's what I did and to get there. And and I I wrote, literally, I wrote a thousand, more than a thousand. I would write letters 
to every college coach begging them to be a, a graduate assistant on their coaching staff. And Bobby Bowden, the former head coach at Florida State, he answered everyone. God bless wow. him, he answered everyone. I was a pain in the ass and he answered everyone. Wow. And I had two, and he wouldn't hire me because you had to be a graduate assistant to become the, to get on the coaching staff. Okay. And so, and that meant I got paid. Whereas when I went to UNLV, being unpaid, it didn't matter. Right. So I had two guys offer me a job, a guy from Southern Illinois, Carmondale, Illinois, and, and Harvey. And I took the UNLV one, obviously. Oh, that's so cool. Amazing. Well, good for you for really, you know, that, that just sounds that like. That drive you, must have been incredible. Yeah. Oh, it was the best. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I drove the Southern way. I mean, I'm this fat kid from New Jersey driving <laughs> along and I'm staying at these hooked and I'm like, I had a, I had the map in the car. Of course, we had no Google Maps. And so I had to flip over the page yes, to it's a trip where tick. I was going to go and then where I would stay. And then I had to call my mother to let her know where I was. I mean, I'm in Meridian, Mississippi, and I'm like. It's don't look too good down here for me. <laughs> they, they spell Italian with a capital E, you know, like I got to get my ass out of here. It We're is go- interesting to me how the perception of Italians, like it, it used to be so prejudicial. Like when you watch that movie Breaking Away and the kid wants to be Italian and his dad's like, I don't want you eating this ID yeah. food. And it's like. Wait, there was a time when spaghetti was looked on with contempt? Like, that yeah. seems so ridiculous now, but it, it seems real to you. Yeah, I mean, like, I would go to the hotel. I, would, I mean, that drive, I could still remember it. Like, if they would have said to me when I got there at, you, at, at Vegas, if they would have said, okay, if you really want to drive, drive back home and we'll fly you back out, I would have said, fuck you, no way, I'm I'm done. I'm like, I'm not making it. <laughs> <Wow. again." laughs> That's so funny. Um, and Goldie, by the way, had would probably have a good recommendation for an item that you should bring in your car for a cross-country trip. <laughs> I know he did. I love that. I don't know why that wasn't a TV show. The Goldies go across the main. I mean, that, that could have been a whole – we could have done something with that, you know? Here's the, here's the thing is if you tell yourself I have an, an emergency bucket I can shit in, that very soon you – Sooner than you think, you'll be shitting in that bucket. <laughs> I promise. Don't give yourself the option. I was hoping when you were in Maine, you would find the, the, the guy in witness protection like Tony did. I, mean, I wish. Business. Oh, that's yeah. I think I would be mistaken for that guy and he'd be choking me. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not, the, I, I'm just a, a different bald guy. <laughs> he always had trouble with the lips on the sculpture, that guy. That was the, that was the giveaway, right? Um, now, you, you mentioned earlier, and I wanted to circle back to a couple of uh, sort of controversial moments. You were you were working for the Raiders during the famous Tuck Rule game yeah. back, which was sort of the beginning of Tom Brady's you know rise. And without that play, who the hell knows what you know what would have happened? Certainly that year they wouldn't have won the Super Bowl. So you you have already you know spoken sort of to Al Davis's reaction to that, which we can all imagine. He must have been apoplectic and on the phone with the league. But what, how how did you feel about that? Being were were you like okay, this is football on to the next, or were you like, what the fuck was that? So I'm at the stadium. First of all, it was the second time. And this is, this, this game has been an idea for me and Goldie knows I've shared this with him. This has been an idea for me about a gambling show that combines the Sopranos with entourage together. And it kind of starts with this game. And, And I've written the characters. I'm not a screenwriter, obviously, but I have this idea And it starts with this game and it starts under the premise of this guy living in Providence owns a diner and he knows it's going to snow during the game. And he takes the Patriots 
and bets a lot of money because the weather is going to change and nobody knows about it. Because that's what happened in real life. Like we did, we knew it was going to snow. We never thought it was going to snow to that magnitude. Right. And had we played the game at one o'clock, there would have been no snow at all. It didn't start snowing until 530 when we got on the team buses to go to the stadium. Right. So I'm at the stadium. I'm sitting there and it's a back and forth game and, and it's horrible. And it's I'm in this tiny little press box at old Foxborough Stadium. And when the play happens, I get up and I literally say, we got it like that loud. Now, you know, the, the decorum and the behavior <laughs> in, in press boxes, you're not allowed to cheer. Yeah. So naturally, the, the, the Patriot guys, so there'll be no cheering in this press box. In front of me, in front of me, when I say that is Art Rooney. OK, he stands up and turns to me and says, that's going to get overturned. Oh, no. And I said, what? He said, yeah, that's the tuck rule. Oh. And I said, what are you talking? I never even heard of the tuck rule. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then naturally it got overturned. And then that game changed. And so that's, and my reaction was the same one that Mike Holmgren said years later, if 10 guys in a bar think it's a fumble, it's probably a fumble, you know? And so, you know, I thought we won the game. And now I will say this. I don't know if we would have beaten Pittsburgh the next week in Pittsburgh. I don't know that. Right. You know, I don't know. I, like everybody thinks that cost us a Super Bowl. I think it cost me a year of education at Fordham for my oldest son. That I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I can guarantee myself on. But I think to me uh, that that that's where that kind of started. And that that left let you know, you just feel like, OK, that was unfair. And then Al just, you know, it happened to Al in the Immaculate Reception, because if you go back to the Immaculate Reception and I write about this in my new book. They, they don't ever signal touchdown. They don't ever signal touchdown. There's somebody, the referees in the in the dugout, Fred's software, I forget his name, but he's in there talking to somebody in the league office. And Al was convinced it was Art Rooney and they were changing or turn, or doing the rule. So, you know, and, and he felt like he got screwed that day. And obviously he felt we got screwed on that day. It, so it makes matters worse. We lose the game. We get down the elevator, they put us in a golf cart to take us to the locker room. They put us on the team bus. We go to Boston. It's still snowing. We don't take off until 6.30 that morning. Oh. Because we can't even – so we got to, like, lay in our crap before we can leave. <laughs> oh, no. So were you – I mean, talk about poking the tiger then. Like, what – it was Al Davis on the plane, or is he – When I told him what happened, when I told him that story, like, I didn't connect Rooney – to the, the Immaculate Reception game. When I told him that, you could almost like that cartoon character where you see the red go up from his shoes up to his ball. You could see that going. Not that goddamn guy, he's fucking me again. I could hear him, you know? And so it was funny, though. This is just tells you who Belichick is. That next day, when I got back into my office, which was 10.30 California time, because we landed and then we all went right to the offices, uh, even though we weren't going to play that next week, Belichick calls me and said, hey, you know, I, I feel bad for it. You know, like he kind of was as gracious as anybody could be knowing what you were going through. Wow. That's amazing. Now, now, but is there, here's the, the underlying question to that. Is there any validity to that? Because, you know, looking as an outsider at the NFL, the Raiders were the bad boys. They were, you know, kind of the outlaws, of the NFL, whereas a, a franchise like the Steelers 
um, were sort of the golden child. I mean, I guess at the Immaculate Reception, they weren't yet. But is there something to that where the, the league itself actively harms a team that they feel is like the bad boys and Al Davis is kind of an outspoken jerk and maybe in their mind. So are are they more likely to have a call go against some team like that? You know, I think, I, I mean, they would say no, but you remember yeah, the Super Bowl when, when Al finally won, you know, there was a conversation whether Roselle was, was he was going to shake Roselle's hands when he presented him with the Lombardi trophy and he did. <laughs> But the, see, I think what people, again, history plays an important role in all this. What people don't realize is Al was the commissioner of the AFL. So that's and, prestigious. Okay. And so when he was the commissioner of the AFL, there was an unwritten rule in football. And during that time, between the wars between the AFL and the NFL, there was an unwritten rule that said college players are fully, you can do whatever you want with them. There's no rules. If you want to pay X, you can pay X. It's, it's fair game out there. However, if you want to go after a veteran player on an NFL team or an AFL player on an AFL team, the club has to say he, they don't want that player. Okay. So much like the Sopranos, Pete Gogolak, the kicker in Buffalo is, is a Buffalo's AFL property. The Giants sign him without Buffalo saying they don't want him, which starts the war. So that war started over a kicker. The Sopranos war started over psychiatry and cunnilingus, right? <laughs> war is how they start, right? So that war started there. And 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 that Gogolak war started, and then Al went to the mattresses. He started signing Roman Gabriel. He started signing John Brody to these long-term AFL contracts that were not going to be, that were going to be executed in years to come. And Al didn't know that Lamar Hunt, the owner of the Chiefs and the founder of the AFL, and Clint and, and Tex Schramm were in a, a parking were in the parking lot at Love Field in the Cadillac of Tex Schramm's car, negotiating the AFL NFL settlement. Oh, wow! And he doesn't know this until it's announced. Wow. So he got left at the altar on all this. So he was like. Nobody really told him that this he wasn't involved in any of these discussions, and he went to the mattresses to do all this other stuff. And so he held a ton of resentment to to this because he felt like his efforts as the commissioner was what brought the leagues to a merger. That's so interesting. And that, and now since we're talking about these controversial moments, something I've always been fascinated by, and of course as a, a Patriots homer, I have my strong opinions on this. Can you give us your take on the Deflate Gate situation? <laughs> It's a complete fabrication. It's a story yes. that's made up. Yes. It's a complete story that's made up, right? It's like, and there's no validity to it. It's like Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, right? That's yes. a made up story. We're going to get right? to that. I know. <laughs> I love that. You know, that's a made up story too, that the media perpetuates through and yeah. they continue to do it, right? And they won't publish anything that comes out that's of the difference. It's just like this. Oh, by the way, the, you know, there were 12 balls that were deflated. Now it's down to two balls. Right. And the, the Patriots scored more points in the second half with the better balls than they scored in the first half with the bad ball. Like it, none of it made sense. Like there was no no real relevance. And what truth be told, every quarterback likes the way the football feels in their hand a different way. Yes. And so nobody really complains about that. 
you know, Rodgers likes the ball fully fooled. Brady likes it a little soft so he gets his hands around it. It was a fabricated story that got generated through the Ravens, through Baltimore, through yep. Indianapolis, and it became this, this whole thing, and it cost the Patriots a first-round pick, a million dollars, and there's nothing to it. Oh, I have two, I I have two things I want to I touch on with answer. that. And the first is that immediately when this happened, I thought about how, you know, living in L.A., you leave your car outside for the night. I have a one-stall garage. If it gets cold, and the next morning your check tires light is on because the pressure has dropped because that's how <laughs> fucking air works. So I knew instantly. I was like, "This is bullshit." Because the game starts, you know, the balls are in the locker room. It's 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 eighty degrees. You take them on the field. It's forty. The pressure drops. Like that's just what that's how it works. But I I wonder is there the the part I've always wondered is what when the Patriots won the Super Bowl that later on. And and there was like the same tension around Brady and Goodell that you had mentioned about the handshake. And then Brady took his hand and held it for a while. <laughs> Do we know anything about that moment that hasn't been said? I, I, I don't, but I can only say this. It's hard to believe that a poster child like Brady cost him four games for something that, that was really not relevant. It's huh. almost like we're going to punish him, even though he's a, even though he's the greatest thing that happened to the league. I mean, think about it. We don't talk about this enough, but – the players, these values of these franchises, especially in New England and all these other, the players do a tremendous amount to enhance the value. Now they don't get they don't get residuals, they don't get you know they don't get syndicated rights because the franchise goes up, right? They just get paid what they get paid, and and you know it's kind of unfair what they did to Tom. I mean, and yes. I'm sure he'll write a book one day to talk about do you, it. Do you think an element of that was this? There was a well-known showrunner who at the time was on the most popular show, and I heard that. During rehearsals, he would make the cast, who was each making an extreme amount of money, he would say, come to the bleachers. And he was, of course, sitting in the bleachers in a perch, and the cast is looking up from the stage. And he would dress them each down after the rehearsal, saying, come to the bleachers. Do you think any element of that is a star like Brady gets so big that the league wants to go, come to the bleachers, the league is in charge, not you? Yeah, and and also... You know, you can't be dominating like this. There's got to be more to it than meets the eye. There's got you're doing something illegal. It's like there's no way Madoff can make all these profits. Like something's <laughs> going on in there. You know, there's got to be something happening. And in Madoff's case, it was true, but there's got to be something illicit going on. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. Well, that's that's so. It sounds like it's as simple as these teams: the Ravens, the Colts, and 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 a little bit the Jets. I think sprinkled in there too. They're just so pissed at how they've been you know dominated by Belichick and the Pats for years that they're gonna they're gonna make this stick and they're gonna tell the commissioner that he's got to really dig and they and the commissioner's got to show that he's being fair and balanced look I think the number one thing and I write about this on the daily coach is is everybody thinks that greed is the motivator in all our lives that that everybody's greedy really envy it's always envy is more powerful than greed so because when we're envious of somebody else, it's when it's really dry. And I think a lot of this was due to not greed, but envy. Oh, that's so interesting. You've, you've wow. covered so many great uh, topics today. And we, we got, thank you. We yeah. need to, we need to talk about yeah. JFK. I, I want to talk about JFK because <laughs> I'm like you. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've read much more about it than I have. I, when I was in college traveling around Europe, I read a book um, God, it was by uh, an author named Mark Lane, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, about um, the the Kennedy conspiracy, and I can't remember what it was called, but I was blown away by this book. And I'm from Massachusetts, so Rush Kennedy... Rush to Judgment. What's it called? Rush to Judgment. Uh, yes, Rush to Judgment. Yes. And so from Massachusetts, and I'm of the mind that had Kennedy been allowed, you know, been allowed to live, he would have won again. And then maybe his brother would have won and maybe, and and our country and the world would be a vastly different place. So that's why I, it rattles around my head so much. So, and you said when you, when you're being buried, if they ever find out who killed Kennedy to exhume you and, Mm -hmm. and bring you back to life and tell you, I'm, I'm of the same mindset. Do you have any theories that, that stand out to you a little more than any others? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I think this was, uh, if you read David Talbert's book, and he goes deeply into the CIA, and I think people today don't understand the climate back then. You know, Kennedy ran like a hawk, because you had to run like a hawk in the 50s. But Kennedy didn't want to really escalate the war in Vietnam. And Kennedy really didn't want to go in that direction, whereas his generals did. And there was this huge conflict between him and the the and Eisenhower talks about it in one of his speeches before he leaves office about this uh, war machine that's going on in the country. So you've got those elements, and then you've got the Bay of Pigs, where where basically Alan Dulles, who we should remove the name Dulles from any airport. If yes. anybody any history studying on the Dulles, they should remove the name, but they won't because it's not politically correct. Although I don't know why, but if you just read enough about him, Dulles lies to the president, gets himself fired. And then these then these chain of events start to happen because it is he's in this office and he write and he and he gives the American speech, the Pax Americana speech about speech. What kind of freedom do I seek, which is one of the all time great ones? Uh, You know, he's talking about trying to find peace with Khrushchev and Russia. Meanwhile, this whole element of his government doesn't want him to do it. And so I think to me. It was from within. And do I think there was mobsters involved? Sure. Do I think there was? But I think it was a coup. And I, and I don't know who pulled the trigger. There's there's documentation that and, and this is this is out there. I'm like, I'm not making any of this up. There's documentation that Oswald tried to make two phone calls when he was in Dallas. Neither call was put through. They were to the same phone number. It was a counterintelligence agent, his handler, who lived in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, James Angleton, uh, the the head of this. I mean, Oswald was on watch list. And it was fascinating how all these things come into play. I think if you look at the the, the Ruth Payne documentary that came out or the Oliver Stone updates with all this stuff, there's so much. There's there's three women who testified that they never saw Oswald come down the steps. There's people in this field that believe that Oswald wasn't even on the sixth floor. Now we get called conspiracy theories, like where some guy in his basement in Des Moines wears underwear all day and just looks <laughs> at a picture, right? Like, like that's not who these people are. Like these are professional, educated people. And yep. if you go on the Dealey Plaza and you're up there and you see as he's coming down, as he's coming down Houston before he takes the turn on Elm, you, like why doesn't he shoot him at that point? It's a clear like, shot. Why? Yeah. And then there's the hobos and then there's the umbrella man. Like, why is that guy with an umbrella? I mean, and of course, the New York Times comes up with, well, he thought it was going to rain. OK, I buy that. Sure. Got it. Yeah, no doubt. We all carry it. <laughs> we think it's going to rain. I mean, I've been walking with an umbrella all day. I'd be like a Batman. With his <laughs> umbrella out there, right? Like, so like it, it, and so there's just so much to it. And, and I think what drives me crazy about it the most is the lack is how the media decides in a free country 
what they're going to tell us and what they're not going to tell us. Yes. That's what to me, if you said, what is the real root of this? It's what store, what do they want to tell us and what do they want to hold back? Yes. And they held back everything, it seems like. And, and you know, to go further into that, I read a, a very interesting book about the Bush family, uh, a Legacy of Secrets or something like that. And it, there, there's a strong case that, that the senior Bush, George H.W., was there and highly involved with what happened. And, and, and he, in his own words, when he's asked about the Kennedy uh, assassination, he says he recalls being in Dallas the day before and the day after, but he can't quite recall where he was that day. It's like someone saying, I don't remember where I was on 9-11. It's, it's just not credible. All right. So if we went to a whiteboard and just started putting up all these things that make no sense, let me add one that makes really no sense. There's this woman named Mary Meyer. Uh, she was the sister of of Ben Bradley's wife, okay? okay. His first wife before uh, he got Sally Quinn. Mary Panoche Meyer, her name was. She married a CIA agent, got divorced. She was essentially, and this is all documented, she was JFK's main lover. I mean, he. this was truly the woman that he loved the most. And she would visit the White House on numerous occasions and would come to parties with with it. There's a book called Mary's Mosaic that's worth the read. So she was uh, a very bohemian type woman. She wanted this this free this. She wanted peace, and she was. They felt she was very instrumental in his development in foreign affairs because he really valued her opinion. They go back to they went they met in 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 in, uh, in prep school. And it kept the relationship and then had this long term affair that Ben Bradley and his sister never knew about it, even though they were best friends with Jack and Jackie. They wow. never knew. So she kept a diary. OK, she kept a very extensive diary of all these events. So when he gets killed, she knows what happened. She believes it was from within. It was subversive from within. So a year later, she's jogging in Georgetown on a towpath. And a guy comes up from behind her and shoots her in the head and kills her. The the case is unsolved to this day. They go back to the apartment. The CIA is the first people that they can't find the diary. And eventually they do. And Bradley allegedly had the diary, but no one's ever read the contents of the diary. It just disappeared off the earth. And that diary is what a lot of people think would have some of the clues as to what was going on. And her murder has never, they brought a man up to charge the man for it. And it was so ridiculous that he wasn't even close to it. If you read this book, you're sitting there saying, this makes no sense. So why did she get killed? We know she had this affair. And so she's dead, but Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman. Like it makes no sense. Nothing ties together. So what do you make of the Jack Ruby piece? So I think Ruby was so you got to go back to Tibbet, right? So I think Tibbet's job was to kill the was to kill Oswald originally, and Tibbet is the Dallas police officer who there's a lot of great books about that about that too. But let me give you that before I go to Tibbet, there is a guy in counterintelligence, and he was convinced that Kennedy was going to get assassinated, and so and he felt like he was going to be the patsy. So in a bank in El Paso, he walks into the bank in El Paso the day before the murder and shoots the and starts firing his gun off into the ceiling at the bank. He gets arrested. So now he's in jail on November 22nd. I forget the guy's name. He's in jail. And he basically tells them all what's going to happen the next day. And he didn't want to be involved with it. He's a counterintelligence agent. 
And so, but nobody's ever heard about this whole episode. Like he's like a secret. There's a whole book written about him. But what I think Ruby was, Ruby was there to execute the plan in case something, in case he had to do to silence someone. Like I truly believe Oswald was a counterintelligent agent and he was a patsy and it was his job to make sure he was silenced. And that's why Ruby was there. And if you just study Ruby and and like he wanted to confess and then he got cancer and died. I mean, there's so much to it. And a lot of it goes back to this tied to the mob and it's tied to the CIA. And I think Oliver Stone did a fantastic job with the movie JFK. I mean, everybody, of course, because they were still towing the party line at the time, poo-pooed the movie and, oh, conspiracy, and how does he know? And he made all this up and this made up. But I thought he did, first of all, the movie is probably the best edited movie that's ever existed. But the theory that he puts forth when when Costner's in the park talking with Donald Sutherland, the uh, Mr. X... And lay and Mr. X lays out what could have happened. That to me seems like the most credible version of the yeah, way it went down. No doubt, and, and that's uh, Colonel Paltry. Uh, Paltry is who they based that on, and that's from a lot of data. And the guy who takes a price for this is Jim Garrison too, because yes. they call Garrison a kook, you know. And Garrison was on top of this from the whole time, and and he was really, and he was really. Uh, uh, somebody. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. He's. We're going to hear a gunshot. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Leave that in. That's so funny. I'm sorry that happened, but somebody's at my door. But anyway. You, you missed it. I said, we're going to hear a gunshot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought Oliver Stone did an incredible job. Me I too. thought it was incredible. And, and this new series that comes out at, that, that, that James D'Angino really helped him write, who's an expert on this subject. If you read any of his books, they're fabulous. And then this Ruth Payne, you know, I mean, here's Oswald living with Ruth Payne and all that. It was just so, it was just so unbelievable. But anyway. Uh, well, I love your passion on that and your passion on football. And and I, Goldie and I, especially Goldie, want to thank you for being here today. It was oh, just, just awesome talking writers, to you. So yeah. Anytime you and, want me to come back, let me know. And I just oh, want to plug you. both your uh, incredible podcast, the GM Shuffle, and your book, Gridiron Genius, your upcoming book. I know you have a couple other things on VEASAN if you want to just get those in. Yeah, I do VEASAN every day from 12 to 2. Typically, I'm, I'm not working today. I'm going to take Tuesdays off. But I the, the podcast and The Daily Coach, which is a Daily motivational uh, that that I, that George Raveling, the great George Raveling, the basketball coach from USC, right? we write together on that with other people too. So that's a that's like a pet project for me. But I, I, I love this conversation. This is so much fun. Anytime... You guys want to have me back? I'll be happy to come back. Uh, Goldie, thank, thank you. you. I did so it for much. you, Goldie. I want you to know. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I, <laughs> and, uh, Alan, I, you I, had I, nothing to do with this. I want you to know. You had nothing to do. I don't give a shit. What, what about JFK? JFK. JC, I would do it for you, too. Thank you. Say hi to Millie for us. And I still think about She brought to our house this stromboli, I think it was. Yeah, and I still it was one of the top five things I've ever eaten. Oh, in my, my God. Life. She's on a roll cooking like I, I just that's why I'm a fat man. I can't ever get through. <laughs> you know. Thanks, All guys. Right. Thank, Thank you, Mike. Mike. So much. Thank you. Amazing. Bye. Oh, God. Mike Lombardi. God bless <laughs> yes. you. That was oh, so fun. Such great a great, get great, great talking with him. Um, but now we're going to slide into a portion of the program we call Top Five. Top Five. Oh, beautiful tones. Uh, JC, tell the folks what we're top five and about today. 
This was top five comedy sketches. Oh, it's tough. It was tough. really tough. Really tough. All right, really well, tough. lead us off. Okay, so um, there's a lot of this must be recency bias because mm-hmm. I, I'm also not as educated in sketch comedy as in SNL and Key and Peele, so I don't know that much. Yeah, well, you sure. can't go back also to like Rosencrantz and Gildenstern. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they were hilarious. Don't spoil it. <laughs> now, I don't know uh, if this is like a no-no, but I put who's on first as my number five. Oh, that's great. Okay, because for me, that's like, isn't that everything kind of goes back to that one? And I even like, I don't know. I, I don't know. That was It's a great sketch. Yeah, I, okay, I, yes. I hadn't thought of it, but that's a great choice. Okay. Uh, my number four is Key and Peele's Continental Breakfast. Um, I, I don't know if you've watched it. I okay. watched it. Yeah, it's, it's very funny. I don't know that I'd put it in my top I, in my yeah. top five ever, but I I get why you like it. It's I do. It, I love it. I, and there's I, a great watched, twist. Yes, it's yeah. It's like foreshadowing his future career, kind of. You yes. know, like yes. So um, yeah, we watched. I, I watched every episode of Key and Peele back in the day. So nice, I, I love nice. that show. Okay, so number three is Lazy Sunday. From yeah. SNL. It sort Viral. of changed the expectation of SNL digital shorts and, you know. Yeah, that was it one also of the first had that, that thing that yeah, first y- you look for in these, which was when you saw it, you were instantly like, wait, I have to see that again. Like, yes. what just happened? I remember yes. having that feeling at the time. Yeah. 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 It was so different that it, it, and you forget now watching it, it just seems like everything else. Yes, because yeah. it's, everything's copying it. Um, now these two were on, they were, they're from SNL and they were there while I was there. So maybe this is why, but one of them is the Dead Poet Society parody. I don't know if you ever saw that oh, one. I haven't. It's written by, uh, Mikey Day, of course, the, the brilliant writer, Mikey Day and, um, his writing partner, Streeter Seidel. You're an adult. Just go yeah. by Mike. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shit. Okay, number one, our last guest wrote this sketch, Black Jeopardy. Oh, I thought, yeah. right. Yeah. Very so, good sketch. So great. Great yes. sketches. Great, great sketches. Yeah. All right, so now it's my turn. <laughs> um, number five, I had a sketch from SNL called Fly High Duluth. I don't know if you remember this. It was uh, Will Forte, who I know we all love, it was a uh, morning show in Duluth, and they were they had a new theme song, and Will Forte was fronting the band that oh. sang this song called okay. "Fly High Duluth," <laughs> okay. and it was a never-ending song that started very melodic in AM morning show, and turned into a Doors the End <laughs> parody with him chugging an entire bottle of Jack Daniels in the middle. It was, I am still, I watched it earlier this week and was still crying laughing. Number four, um, and I'll, I'll confess, let me confess, I meant to say this ahead of time, I didn't watch Key and Peel and I didn't watch Chappelle, so I, like, I'm ignorant when it comes to the great sketches that, that both of those shows have done, and I know there are plenty, so forgive me for that. But number four was something called the pre-taped call-in show on Mr. Show, which I thought was a genius sketch where Dave Cross played the host of a pre-taped call-in show. So all the calls 
were driving him insane because they were for the wrong topic so because he had already taped this. the show. And it, it was very funny. Number three from Monty Python, a sketch called Four Yorkshiremen. If you haven't seen this, you have to watch it. It's like four older English uh, Yorkshiremen talking about the old times and exaggerating how terrible their youth was. And it they just keep one-upping each <laughs> other to a ridiculous degree. Hilarious. Uh, number two from SNL back in the 80s, the synchronized swimmers. Oh, yeah. Mar- oh, that's Martin great. Short and Harry Shearer and Christopher Guest as their yes. choreographer where he was playing like an early Guffman like character. <laughs> so funny. And number one from Mr. Show, a sketch called The Audition. We have overlap. Oh. oh love that one. So, Goldie, take it away. Okay. Uh, number five, raisins, rice, and rye. No. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and rye. <laughs> and rye. Uh, number five is Key and Peel, the East-West Bowl, where they, oh, their take great. on the football players saying where they went to college. Yes. Over the footage. I have seen that That's one. Funny. So funny. Yeah. Uh, number four, and I cheat a little bit on some of these because they're bits within a larger show. You could technically say they may not be sketches, but Tim Robinson's Dan Flashes. Um, oh, I don't know that. From his sketch show, but specifically the the first part where he's in the conference room of a business meeting playing a guy who's out of it and starving because instead of using his per diem for food, he's been saving it to buy a shirt at a store called Dan Flashes where all the shirts have... <laughs> have crazy patterns on them. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. That was funny. I, I don't know that I've ever laughed that hard as I did when I when the, the premise of that was unfolding. <laughs> Number three, and, and it's an entire episode of Chappelle. It's cheating a little bit, but I, I do think it's, it's fundamentally a sketch, is Charlie Murphy's Rick James story, yes. I'm Rick James, bitch. Which I should have had that on there. Instantly when I saw that, had the reaction of like, oh my God, what did I just see? Yeah. Like, I, I don't even know what that was. That And then, yeah, that was so good. Yeah, right? that, It was that's like glimpsing into future comedy. Yeah. That's yes. something that I've never seen. And, and honestly, when I hear that phrase, I'm Rick James, bitch, it annoys me. Like, I'm yeah. just like, I, I don't, I, I don't, okay, I'm not, all right, I see. When you I come to the Cape, we'll watch it. Okay, good. Yeah, nice. good. Number two, the audition, you talked about it, Mr. Show. And number one, and I'm saying this because it started as a sketch. It turned into so much more, but Borat. Oh, oh it started out yes. a sketch. Yes. I forgot about Borat. Which, God, so as, a, as a movie-going experience, was just unforgettable. Unbelievable. Yeah. That and Jackass too. maybe the hardest yeah. I've laughed in a theater. Um, all right, Goldie, what do we have next week? Well, you're you're gonna hate these. I have two. I have two options. I'll say the first one, and if you don't like it, I'll say the second one. Top five birds. I like it. I have it on my on a possible list for myself. But Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yes. do it. And I see one cheating answer that I'm definitely gonna use. All right, that'll be fun next week, Goldie. Top five birds, um, and we have a guest next week, and maybe she'll join us in the top five birds. The very talented uh, writer; she's written on so many things, Mom, uh, many things. Morgan Murphy will be here with us. Goldie Yay. and I have known her for a while. Uh, it'll be fun to get her perspective on comedy writing. So we're going to do that next week. Uh, but now let's end the show as we always do on a high note. Whoa. Uh, 
Um, let me quickly throw out my high note. Um, I was going to do this last week, but Susanna Makos was so good that um, I decided to make it about her. But this week, I want to talk about it's a movie called Devotion. Um, and it's on now. It was out in theaters a few months ago. It's now on our, our old favorite Paramount Plus. And the reason, uh, first of all, it's a great movie. It's a great story. It's about uh, the first uh, black naval aviator who uh, fought in the Korean War. And he and his wingman formed like a special bond. Well, it just happens. It just so happens that his wingman was one of my great friends from high school's father. His name yeah. was uh, Tom Hudner. He passed away not too long ago. But the movie is amazing, and the heroism that both of these two showed, and Goldie, I know you're familiar with this from your dad and his feats in World War II, it's just, it's so astounding to me what we do in our daily lives and what gets us pissed or right. you know agitated in some way versus what this generation went out there and did. So not only is there a great friendship story, a great race relations story, but it happens to be about a friend of mine's dad yeah. who was nothing short of a hero. And the movie is fantastic. If you have time, it's, uh, it's a fantastic watch. Paramount Plus Devotion. So what, what? would his dad, the great wingman, have done had his child run away <laughs> screaming in a trampoline park? <laughs> I think he would have been very similar to what your dad would have done, which I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> well, he would have never been in a trampoline park. Right. There you go. That's the problem. Yeah. I'll do mine okay. uh, because it relates to that, which is uh, school. That's my high note. Because <laughs> they're back. I, I'm forever grateful there is a place that children go where they are educated and cared for by professionals yeah. who are experts in the art of dealing with their issues, problems, concerns, and thrilling personalities. <laughs> Amen. 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 Yes. Um, my high note is uh, this weekend we had a nice long weekend. I took Friday off. I don't have kids, so it really felt like a weekend. <laughs> oh, rubbing it in. <laughs> Sorry, Goldie. <laughs> and um, I, we are a writing podcast, and I have been a songwriter for a long time, but I had pretty severe writer's block because I had a, I blame it um, externally on somebody that I was a writing partner with who you know, emotionally, he basically told me everything I wrote was shit. And it's taken me so many, so cool. It's taken, and I respected this person so much. But um, recently, Stu and I went, we decided we were going to write some music this month. And we went downstairs and we started writing and it felt like getting on a bike. It was just very, it came naturally to us and we had an amazing time. So uh, I'm really grateful. uh, Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I I just want... When you feel bad about your songwriting abilities, I just want to read you a little bit of the song Bad is Bad by Huey Lewis in the News. Do, 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 da, do, 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 da. That's five times. Went uptown to see my cousin plays guitar, sounds like a chainsaw buzzing. In the crowd, I see his mom and dad. I say, hey, Uncle Man, your son is bad. So 
That's bad. Whatever you're doing that is, bad. is better than this. I guarantee. Thank you, Goldie. It's no We Built This City, that's no. for sure. <laughs> Wait. Um, those are great high notes, JC. I'm glad your, your writing block, your culvert has been unclogged. <laughs> Thank um, you. We will, we will, li- listen, anything you write and put together, we're, we're playing it on here. We well, I don't know about it. that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, come on. That's no. an obligation. I kind of feel like you guys wouldn't like this style of music, but it's we would but. like. It, I promise you. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, anyway, what is it going to be as good as the baked potato? No, <laughs> nothing. That's right. We got to get that song yeah. uh, buttoned up. Yes. Um, anyway, thank you to Mike Lombardi again. What yes. a great guest. Yes. He was awesome. Thank you two for being awesome. Thank, thank you. you all for listening, and we will talk to you again next week. No one wants that. <laughs> That was fun! And it stops right now!